Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the Digital Bob phone, she's our guest, Dylan scholar and podcaster, Laura Tenshirt. I've heard you say many times that you're better than no one and no one is better than you. If you really believe that, you know you got nothing to win and nothing to lose. From fixtures and forces and friends, your sorrow does stem, that hype you and type you, making you feel that you must be exactly like them. Nice. Well, out of all of Bob Dylan's lyrics, why did you choose those, Laura? Well, first of all, I think it's a very difficult task to choose just a few lines, and I have mm. agonized over this decision. And in the end, <laughs> as I'm sure many of your guests have, in the end, I went with my first choice because To Ramona is a song that is so near and dear to me. But I also think that it's a song that encapsulates a lot of Bob Dylan's own philosophy, I think, is particularly the lines which weren't in the ones that I just recited, but everything passes, everything changes, just do what you think you should do. To me, that kind of is something that Bob Dylan has, I think, held on mm. to through the decades. But I also think that the lines that I chose say a lot about where Bob Dylan was at at that point in the just mid-60s. And I think around that time, he wrote a few songs that were directed at someone, usually a woman, giving advice to a woman. But actually, when you hear the song, you get the idea that he's really talking to himself. Mm. I think to Ramona is a song like that. I think like a Rolling Stone, I think, is an example. And I think It's All Over Now, Baby Blue is also, I think, a beautiful example for these types of songs where Bob Dylan is giving advice that is... It's almost like he's created a person in need of advice because it's easier to address someone else than speaking in the first person. And actually, I think Joni Mitchell has said that about Bob Dylan, that she saw one of the big differences between her writing and Dylan's writing, that she usually chooses to write in the first person, whereas Dylan usually mm. addresses a you. And I thought that was quite, I thought that was really interesting. I just love to Ramona. I yeah. love the linguistic playing around of, you know, you're better than no one and no one is better than you, which should be completely opposite. But yeah. better than no one sounds like sort of second to none. So your mind tricks you into thinking that they're two opposites that mean the same thing. And it's also interesting because this is also a concept that Dylan has returned to really recently in the song False Prophet, where mm. he sings, I'm first among equals, second to none. Yeah. The last of the best, you can bury the rest. And so I think that's very similar, very much related to this line from To Ramona. You say that you're better than no one and no one is better than you. Do you think you've got the sort of brain, Laura, because I've been listening to Definitely Dylan, your, I think, wonderful podcast, mm. uh, Dylan oh, podcast. And I notice that often you're really good at uh, picking things out, like, for instance, the fact that that phrase, soul of the nation, is in Murder Most Foul, but it's also in uh, Dignity. Mm. And... I hadn't realized that until I heard your podcast. I mean, do things jump out at you when you hear Dylan lyrics? Do you very often see the similarities in the play between various of his songs, or is this just a fluke? Well, my first language is German. English is my second language. Mm. And I learned English basically by listening to Bob Dylan. And so I think I have a very close relationship with the lyrics that I memorized while holding on to my dictionary trying mm. to understand them. And so I think maybe because this is my second language, certain things jump out at me in ways, you know, certain turns of phrases that maybe native speakers just wouldn't pay as close attention to. I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily the case. No, I think that's right, because English people are sort of blind to the lack of logic that inherently exists in the language because we're so used to it, whereas mm. it, might, it might jump out to a different set of ears. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, and I think that I you know, memorized so many of Bob Dylan's lyrics because that's what we do, right? <laughs> and yeah. and I think it's just that sometimes I hear a certain phrase and I immediately think, oh, where have I heard that before? And that was certainly the case with Murder Most Foul and Soul of a Nation. And actually, you know, a lot of rough and rowdy ways, I think, refers back to or, or can be seen to link back to earlier Dylan songs, which I think mm. is like really fascinating because it's almost like Bob Dylan is now ready to look back. 
Is that possible? <laughs> well, there's a series of kind of circles, I think, in, in rough and rowdy ways, because when you get to the end of it, you kind of feel that a circle is completing from mm. the beginning of the album. You also feel a circle is completing from 1963, which is what he's talking about. And then, yeah, as you say, there are these little linguistic references, which feel like a not a, not a closing of the circle, because that sounds too final. But you're right. He's looking back, isn't he, in some sense? Yeah, I think rough and rowdy ways is a really introspective and dare I say, personal record, which is what makes it, I think, one of his best, because I think that's what we as listeners also relate to. And even if it's, and when I say personal, I don't necessarily mean that it's autobiographical, but I do mm-hmm. think it's very personal. So speaking of personal, Laura, so you grew up speaking German in Germany? My family lives in Switzerland, but yes, Germany and Switzerland is where I grew up, yeah. So did you grow up in Germany up to a certain age then and then move to Switzerland? Yes, Which... yes. We moved to Switzerland when I was eight. And when did you start teaching yourself English through the lyrics of Bob Dylan? Well, before Bob Dylan came along, I was teaching myself English listening to the Beatles. The Beatles were kind of my first musical love, which is why at the moment I'm, like the rest of the world, very excited about the Get Back documentaries. And then I got into Bob Dylan when I was around 16. And like him, I never looked back. (laughs) It was very convenient because I think if you understand pop lyrics, like the ones that the Beatles were writing most of the time, then I think Bob Dylan is a great next step to kind of take Mm. it to the next level and learn all sorts of more advanced vocabulary. (laughs) No, exactly. I I went to see, I was given a ticket to see um, Paul McCartney be interviewed at the uh, Royal Festival Hall just uh, recently Mm. to publicize his new book. And I was thinking, I enjoyed it because I enjoyed being in the same room as Paul McCartney as a huge Beatles fan. But I also thought, can you possibly imagine Bob Dylan sitting there and answering these pre-vetted questions in yeah. front of this audience of adoring people who he, you know, treated well and <laughs> just, it was just so ridiculously un-Bob Dylan. Yeah. Uh, as, as you say, it was, Dylan works on a, a totally different level. But after you uh, started learning English, I mean, presumably you learned English in school as well, though. Yes. Uh, Yes. And did you go to university? I don't know anything about your background, just because your your podcast is so intellectually quite forensic. Yeah, so I moved to London and I went to university here. I did my BA and my MA here. I studied comparative literature. And I think a lot of that comes into play when I write the podcasts. But I, I do also do music. So I think I come at Bob Dylan both with that literature background when I approach his lyrics, just to drawing parallels and and trying to see themes and recognize certain metaphors that repeat throughout his work and, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm, It's, mm. I mean, that is is partly also just what I'm interested in, you know, and I think the world of Bob Dylan podcasts, I mean, definitely Dylan initially started out as a radio show and now it's also a podcast. Really, my goal was just to create a show that would be the kind of show that I listen to. And luckily, conversations about Dylan, you've got the Dylan world covered with your lovely podcast. And so I, I think everyone's just kind of approaching Dylan from a different angle. And personally, mm. I have been really interested in talking about the themes because I think there is no need to explain what Dylan is doing. There's no need to explain like you know, what he means or whatever, because I think... Everyone listening to Dylan intuitively gets something out of the songs, you know. But I think because I have a background in literature studies, I think it is interesting to explain how he's doing what he's doing rather than, you know, oh, this means that. I don't think that's ever really that fruitful. Hmm. But I think trying to show people, hey, have you noticed that this bit repeats here? And, you know, could this be on purpose or... There's an interesting theme. One of the podcasts that I did this year on Rough and Rowdy Ways is about like the themes of creation and creativity mm. on the songs of Rough and Rowdy Ways and the way that the songs My Own Version of You and Mother of Muses look at those themes from opposite sides, almost like two sides mm. of a coin. That's the kind of stuff that I find interesting. And I hope that people come along on this ride with me because it can be, it can be a quite an, an in-depth 
journey. But I hope it's still also entertaining for people. Oh, I, I love that. That particular episode was very entertaining. It really got me buzzing. Oh, the, thank um, you. Yeah, the, the difference between my own version of you and, and uh, Mother of Muses. Yeah, because one is sort of, you know, saying I, I create something by taking bits of existing material. And one is asking for inspiration, I guess, in the purest sense, isn't it? Yeah, it's about asking for inspiration, but it's also inspiration through memory. Because mm. he's calling... On the muse, but it's not just the muse, it's the mother of muses. And the mother of the muses was Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory. So in a sense, actually, it's also taking something that's already existent via your memory and to draw on traditions and to draw on the culture that's already in your memory and to draw inspiration from that, which I think is very much what Dylan is doing, in addition to his more recent method of writing, which is pretty much literally what he's singing about in my own version of you, right? <laughs> Taking bits and pieces and yeah. putting them together and, and mm. forming. And his painting's the same, right? I mean, you know, and the paintings too. And, yeah, yeah. And his ironwork sculptures, you know, he's taking old bits and pieces and making new gates out of them. Yeah. I think that's something that kind of runs through the different media that he works in. I think because of that, I think it's particularly fascinating because he is flat out telling us what's inspiring him. Mm. And yet he is also showing us what he makes of that because we see the raw ingredients and then we see what Dylan has turned them into. And in the middle, there's, there is really a process of alchemy, like the strike of lightning that he's talking about in my own version of you, because the creative spark still needs to be there. If someone else took those same influences, they would turn it into something very different than what Dylan turns it into, which is why I think that the accusation of plagiarism, I think, is simplifying the matter way too much. Mm. Well, plagiarism, I remember my university tutor telling me that plagiarism is not the act of taking existing material. It is the act of claiming that it's your original work. That is mm. the, the crucial mm -hmm. thing about plagiarism. And so that's a different discussion, isn't it, really? Yes. I've uh, heard uh, or read a Dylan interview where somebody was talking to him quite some time ago about accusations of plagiarism. And, and he more or less said, have you read any Henry Timrod? And the, yeah. the person said, well, no. Uh, he said, did you ever hear of Henry Timrod? <laughs> uh, no. Well, you try taking Hen you, you try taking Henry Timrod and turning it into a song. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> exactly. I dare you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, he has a point, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. who'd I mean, heard of him before, before modern times? I hadn't. Yeah, no, I nobody, hadn't. nobody, no. no. Um, not to mention the Yakuza guy. I don't even know what his uh, his name is. Um, Unichi Saga. Oh, well, there you go. You you do have you've got a brain that sort of collects these things as opposed to mine where they just sort of dribble through. But I, I was struck by your various episodes that you did about Rough and Rowdy Ways because they were quite quick. I remember also that, I don't know when it came out, but you did an episode quite quickly about Murder Most Foul, which was really soon after it came out. I mean, mm -hmm. I was still getting through the first verse and you'd, I don't know how long it took you, but... I mean, how do you go about preparing an episode, for instance, about, say, a, a gigantic song like Murder Most Foul? Do you think, well, here goes, and it just kind of hits you, uh, your first impressions or second impressions? or Take us through, I, I'd be interested, honestly, as another podcaster, as, as how you put together a podcast, if there's any typical thing that you do. Well, I think the episode of Murder Most Foul is a little bit of an outlier because I myself have no idea how I managed to get that podcast out. I think within a week <laughs> of the release of the song, looking back and especially because I remember thinking, oh my God, this is taking too long. I need to put this out. And I think actually I had first recorded it as a video, then I rewrote it, then I recorded it as a podcast and then I rewrote it and then I recorded it as a podcast again. <laughs> so I had the feeling it took me ages, but looking back, I'm thinking, wow, how did I do this so quickly? Because I'm currently still working on a podcast series about rough and rowdy ways and I only have two chapters out, out of five. Mm -hmm. And we're one and a half years after the release of rough and rowdy ways. But I think, I mean, it depends a little bit. I think when I started definitely Dylan early 2018 as a radio show, I had a weekly deadline because it was a weekly radio show on a London radio station. And I basically mm -hmm. had to write something 
that I could present because I posed myself the challenge to not just, I don't know, play music as I easily could have done, but instead I was really interested in taking a minuscule little detail from Dylan's career and talking about that for an hour. But having that weekly deadline was really helpful for me. Murder Most Foul ended up being the first podcast episode that I did because I decided, you know, this would be a really good moment, the beginning of the pandemic, a new Dylan song out, and it's such a monumental work. So I decided to put it out as a podcast episode. But obviously, then I also realized that if I don't have a firm deadline, that also means that you know I can keep working on the episodes. And I think that has as so many things that has good sides and bad sides, because I think you know, we're all perfectionists and I don't want to put an episode out before it's right. And sometimes that means, you know, that I have an episode 85% finished for a few weeks and it just doesn't feel right yet. And then at some point, you know, the penny drops. I'm like, oh, okay, this is what I need to do with it. And then I rewrite it and then it's done. But as for how I, how I work on these episodes, I mean, it always starts with an idea. It always starts with, you know, something that I'm really interested in writing about when shadow kingdom came out i initially hadn't planned on writing a podcast episode about it but during that week that we were living with shadow kingdom as a live stream i became just more fascinated with what it was and i you know just got the gears in my head turning and i just had a few ideas that i really wanted to talk about and i thought okay well now I'm going to sit down and work on this. And, you know, and then you have to work on it until it's done. And that's sometimes a little bit unpredictable. I, obviously, sometimes I wish I could crank out more episodes. But at the moment, you know, I'm the only person working on this. I mean, my partner, Robert, who um, hosts the radio show with me, he helps me sometimes with production stuff, but it's really all me. So mm. that means just that things take a little bit longer. But I think... That also means that it's completely my vision and it's ready when I say it's ready. And then I'm usually very happy and quite proud of the episodes. It's quite it's something the, to be able to do that. Because, I mean, you know, we all live in the age of the internet and Twitter and the Dylan fan community is a it's a frightening and dark place at certain <laughs> times. <laughs> nice, nice, nice two people, you know, great people. But, yeah. but, you know, when Murder Most Foul or, or Shadow Kingdom comes out or drops in the parlance of our times you know people want to know what you think and they want to know it really really quickly and it's impossible to formulate nuanced authoritative the word tends to be takes doesn't it and nobody wants yeah. your opinion anymore they want your take and you just can't do it as quickly as the world demands it but you yeah. you somehow seem to do it which is is no no mean feat you know not only that a great playlist for murder most foul <laughs> oh, yeah. it's I'm, I'm making my way through it actually at the moment some some wonderful and really unexpected uh, and deeply weird stuff. And I was I was just scrolling through it actually earlier today, and I noticed that um, you included um, right at the end when he says right at the end of the song he says uh, that line about darkness and let it come when it comes. Right. Yeah. But it hadn't occurred to me that he was uh, name checking Leonard Cohen's song "Darkness," and I thought. It makes perfect sense, actually, because he is name-checking a song. I just, when I listened to it, I didn't consider it the name of the song. I considered that it was allied to some sort of, you know, death. Yeah, and but I mean, I don't necessarily claim authority over that line. I mean, I remember mm. at the time, a lot of people thought that Dylan might have been referencing an Eminem song. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Leonard Cohen is the wrong choice and Eminem is the right choice. You know, I think that's the beauty mm. with a song like Murder Most Foul that it also sends us on. It's it's a it's a kind of treasure map, I think, that's very open. It's an immersive song in lots of different ways, you know. It's immersive in and of itself. It's a whole world and it's long and it's dark and it tells a story. It's kind of meditative as well with the repeated play, this at the end, play that. But I also think then for those who wish to dig deeper, there's a whole other world that the song only is hinting at you know that that's open for you to discover if you wish to discover and I mean nowadays with something like Spotify it is really easy to just put a playlist like this together for people who want to dig a little deeper and I think that's a I think that's a really wonderful thing and I think the Dylan community is I think it's a really wonderful 
place. I mean, certainly there can always be people who take it a little bit too seriously or who get very competitive. My God, Dylan fans can be very competitive. <laughs> but I think overall what I've experienced is that there is a real feeling of people providing resources and being very generous with their thoughts alone, like the whole culture of bootleg sharing. And and now I think where content creation is so much easier, I do think that podcasts and blogs and newsletters, you know, Substack and so on, I think those are all really great tools to give different perspectives of Dylan fans a voice. And I mean, this is something that is very important for me because one of the reasons why I started Definitely Dylan was also because I felt that there weren't enough women talking about Dylan. And it was a really wonderful opportunity for me to, you know, literally give a voice to the female Dylan fans. And that is something that I'm very proud of. I love seeing, you know, other women writing about Dylan. I mean, also a lot of younger fans, younger women becoming Dylan fans and having their own takes on Dylan. Because I think in the end, it enriches how we think about Dylan. It broadens the horizon of what we understand Dylan to be in our culture. Because people who are younger, people who aren't men, people, you know, from the LGBTQ community mm-hmm. and people of color, you know, they will have different ideas. They will hear different things than, you know, the kind of like first generation of Dylan critics, which were predominantly straight white men over a certain mm-hmm. age. And that's something that I'm very excited about because I think we're currently at this I don't know if we want to call it a crossroads, but I do think that we're on the brink of something where the next generation of Dylan fans are starting to make their voices heard. And I think that will invariably change how we think about Dylan. I think that's that can only ever be a good thing. I agree entirely. And, and speaking as one half of a balding white male Dylan fan team, I think the time is absolutely right to open it up, you know? Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how people do get into Dylan these days, you know, younger people, because presumably it's uh, something like Spotify or some sort of streaming thing rather than a whole album. I mean, I can't really imagine how people come to Dylan. I'm not really sure either. I do think that tools like Spotify and so on are really helpful. And, um, you know, again, kind of social media helps to find like-minded people who can recommend songs and put together playlists. I mean, in the end, I think it's not that different from good old-fashioned mixtape or mix CD. Mm. I think good music will always find Mm. you when Mm. you're ready. Speaking of, we always ask everybody who's on, how did you actually, how did Dylan come to you in, uh, in Switzerland? When was it? Well... It's a funny story, I think, because I got into Bob Dylan through a real deep cut because my music teacher gave me a cassette tape on which he had copied Dylan's Shot of Love. I mean, Shot of Love is kind of an unlikely gateway album, I think. (laughs) But he basically gave it to me and said, you should really listen to the last song. You should listen to Every Grain of Sand because I think you should sing the song in church. And I said, wow. And he said, oh, did you know that Dylan did basically christian music and i was like okay <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, oh boy uh, yeah I, I wasn't totally won over by that premise and 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 then and he said you know and his harmonica playing is really nice and i was like oh harmonica i don't know you know i'm not so sure i mean you know I, and dylan was kind of a new blowing in the wind i think i had the free wheel and bob dylan actually because i liked blowing in the wind and but i, I certainly hadn't listened to it in any depth But I took it home and I listened to Every Grain of Sand and I completely fell for it. You know, I just, it drew me in. And, you know, I'm not sure if I even understood all the lyrics at the time because, you know, my English certainly wasn't what it is now. And it's a very lyric heavy song, obviously. Mm. But there was something about the song, a serenity and a beauty that just really drew me in. And really surprisingly, the harmonica really won me over because it's so tender It's so soft, you know, both words that you wouldn't necessarily use to describe a harmonica playing. And from that point onwards, I really, I went deeper and I, you know, never looked back really. And I I should say this, I am very excited because I'm actually getting on a plane tomorrow 
to catch Bob Dylan's last show of the tour in Washington, oh D.C. Oh, uh, And I'm very excited to hear him hopefully close with every grain of sand. So well, yeah, he's, what's he, it's what he's been doing for the last couple of weeks, isn't it? Yeah. I envy you. I've got goosebumps just <laughs> thinking about, you know, seeing the first leg of the Dylan tour. Of course, this will go out in a few months, so that will, will, will seem mm. slightly old news. But right. at the moment, that's very, very exciting. And did yeah. you, have you been listening? Because someone sent me a, a recording of one of the Beacon shows. And the, the Rough and Rowdy Ways material, some of it just, re not that it was it needed to come alive, but it, it's just, it's got a new life. I mean, False yes. Prophet and, and Mother Muses as well. And my own version of you just, just sound phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I've been listening to some of the recordings just because, you know, I needed to know what it sounds like. And I was completely stunned. I mean, I think it's so beautiful. I, you know, we knew that his voice was sounding gorgeous on rough and rowdy ways. But for some reason, I think his voice is sounding even younger, even more <laughs> youthful yeah. now on these on these live shows. And once I sort of hatched the plan or, or <laughs> even considered flying over, I kind of cooled it on listening to the bootlegs because I really wanted the yeah, impression cool. of the songs to be fresh. And I didn't want to, you know, I, I didn't want to find a favorite version of a song and then oh quite right uh, too yeah, yeah yeah maybe maybe then the version live wouldn't i mean i would mm. never be disappointed but you know what i mean you know i, I yeah, wanted to yeah, still yeah. be surprised by what he's doing and not to have listened to too many i think that too because i mean presumably he'll come to london at some point and i'm thinking Fingers at some possible. point in the next year or two i need to stop looking at the set lists and then <laughs> so when I do go and see him, I, I have the yeah. capacity to be surprised, you yeah. know, which would be nice. Yeah. My favorite, uh, you've been sending me a lot of this, uh, Luke, and um, I was listening to the um, third show, I think, in New York, mm -hmm. uh, the my own version of you. It may not have been the third show, but it's the one where the, the whooping guys are going <laughs> crazy. And it's... Uh, there's always a space for sort of whooping in, in that particular, in any song. Yeah. I mean, if you are a whooper, which we're, we're very anti-whoop on this uh, podcast. Anyway, and so one guy just is going about halfway through the song. He's just going bah! each time and, and Dylan just mumbles, shut up. <laughs> And, and he's, it's perfectly timed because he manages to get it. There's the whoop and then there's the shut up. And then he goes right in with the next uh, lyric mm. and and then he gets he gets around of course because um you know most bob dylan fans aren't whoopers because well, a whoop is nothing to do with the music and it's all about the whooper it's all about saying look at me i'm spontaneous and i'm really into this but i just it's a, i'm far from spontaneous you know, i did in a way feel sorry for him because this this <laughs> particular and and I speak as somebody who hates whoopers but this particular incarnation of dylan it almost feels like what he really wanted when he was born again it's like people are in church and they they're yes. it's like dylan has come again and they're they're whooping some of them i mean i i might whoop just to, <laughs> just to see bob dylan singing uh rough and rowdy ways you know I'm, I'm, carry, you'll you know. have to you know hold me down <laughs> Yeah, maybe we the... won't go together. Maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I've changed my mind now. <laughs> All right, I promise. Sorry, Laura. Go on. I know what you mean about being anti-whoop. On the other hand, I listened to the first show of this tour in Milwaukee, and I have to say, I was so happy that this was a recording that was taken from the audience, and that it featured so much of the audience because. In that particular show, you could really feel the excitement. And it was a special show, right? I mean, Dylan hadn't taken this long a break mm. in a long time. And it was just his 80th birthday. He had a new album of new material. You know, there were so many things coming together to really kind of whip up the excitement, you know, leading up to that first show in Milwaukee. And I think you could really feel the suspense and the excitement in the crowd. And personally, as I was listening to it, I was relishing every whoop of excitement. I, <laughs> I, I was like, yes, you know, you, you are responding exactly how I feel right now hearing these songs. You know, can you believe there's Bob Dylan on stage again? He's singing all these new songs. He's sounding fantastic. And, and all of that, you know, really whips up the excitement. Yeah. And I, you know, in that case, I was really, I was there with all the people expressing 
their joy. But of course, it depends, you know, how intrusive the whooping gets. And if, if, if it gets to the point where Bob Dylan has to tell them to shut up, then, you know, I respect that too. <laughs> he, has, he has every right to do that. But in Milwaukee, I definitely had the feeling that Bob Dylan was welcoming the expression coming from the crowd that they mm. were so happy to see him and they were so happy to hear him. Yeah. And he is talking to the crowd and it just yeah. sounds fabulous. Mm. I think this particular guy maybe was upsetting the rhythm of the show. Or, or whatever, but I'll tell you, he didn't make a sound after that. There was not that particular whoop was not heard. Yeah. That would have been Again, useful he, in uh, in Manchester. You can tell his grandchildren that Bob Dylan told him to shut up. Yeah, right. so. yeah I think the earth might have opened and swallowed him up. <laughs> <laughs> I think so because the the shut up was if if you can uh, track that down, or maybe we can stick it somewhere. It was. Uh, Yes, it was like a shut up from the grave. Yeah, it was it's devastating. It was devastating. It, just, was, it was beautiful. Lauren, it was like, play it fucking loud. You know? Just picking yeah. up on your, your effortless um, quote, foot of pride then. What did you think of uh, Springtime in New York, the 80s bootleg series? I thought Springtime in New York is a really interesting collection. I mean, I bought the deluxe edition and I also, also have that beautiful third man box set on vinyl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... I think this was one of the most highly anticipated bootleg series, probably, because Infidels is one of these albums that has, you know, I think fans feel quite strongly about Infidels. A lot of people having maybe even put together their own quote unquote ideal track list of the album, you know, that includes mm-hmm. songs like Blind Willie McTell and uh, Foot of Pride and, you know, all those songs. And so I think that people just from what I have seen, that they were very much looking forward to getting a kind of answer from Mm. this bootleg series, you know. Oh, you know, why did Bob Dylan choose to go with these songs? Why didn't he include this or that or whatever? But I think Springtime in New York, to me, wasn't quite that. I think it didn't, if anything, listening to the collection it cemented to me the conviction that Dylan actually made the right choice in a lot of in a lot of ways. I mean, of course, Blind Willie McTell is, you know, a masterpiece. But would it have fit in the context of Infidels? I mean, clearly Dylan didn't think so. Mm. And also, we don't know exactly what those songs sounded like in the studio, how much work was done to them before they made it onto the bootleg series, because I do think that certain tweaks are being oh, yeah. made oh, yeah. and you know the the version of blind willie mctell that's on this bootleg series that cough at the beginning mm, was exactly. edited out yeah. so stuff like that but where i thought springtime in new york really shone or where i think it really shines is ironically with all the cover songs oh, the yeah. covers from the shot of love sessions the covers from the infidel sessions and just because i think they really once again show that Dylan in the early 80s was one hell of a singer. And so often, I think, during sessions when Dylan is trying to figure out a certain song, he then turns to a song that he really loves and gives that song his all, just Mm. performing it and getting the band warmed up. And I think real moments of magic happen when they play those songs together and on that particular set you know you have something like i wish it would rain a temptations mm-hmm. cover that is to me one of the highlights of the collection really and then there's other stuff where we see these cover songs overlapping with dylan's own songs like for example it occurred to me that and and the the studio logs actually show this that one of my favorite infidels outtakes is the song lord protect my child and, you know, the version that's on the bootleg series one, two, three, to me is just such a gorgeous recording. Yeah. And that is one where I think, oh, I wish he would have put that on the album. But I also understand why he didn't. It was the album, you know, that was his quote unquote secular comeback. You know, having a song like mm-hmm. Lord Protect My Child on there mm-hmm. might have been communicating something he didn't want to communicate. Or it was too personal. Who knows? But basically, the log of the studio shows something that we can also hear, and that's that he took the instrumentation for Lord Protect My Child from the Willie Nelson cover, Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground. And if you listen to them back to back, if you listen to the version of Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground, that's on Springtime in New York, you can really hear it's basically the same song. Mm. And they were recorded on the same day as well. 
Mm-hmm. And so I really think it was Dylan saying to the band, this is the kind of vibe that I'm going for. And we know that Dylan does this. We know that he did this with albums like Time Out of Mind as well, Rough and Rowdy Ways. I'm sure lots of other recent albums as well. He probably said to his band during the Infidel sessions, okay, let's play this Willie Nelson cover and then bring this atmosphere, even the key, you know, and this kind of instrumentation, this feel, I want that on this song, Lord Protect My Child. And they sound very similar at the same time. You know, the vocals are totally different because Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground is... I mean, I think, again, it's a beautiful vocal performance, but it's very different from the blues song that is Lord Protect My Child. So, again, we've touched on this earlier, Dylan taking something old and making it new. And I think it's still to me astonishing how he went from Angel Flying Too Close to the Ground to this beautiful blues version of Lord Protect My Child. Mm. And that to me is like where the bootleg series are really interesting when we get a glimpse at Dylan's process as a performer, his process in the studio, his writing process, you know, when we see a song like Too Late turn into Foot of Pride and, you know, what he keeps, what he discards, that to me is really fascinating. And in the case of Springtime in New York, to me, it's all about the vocal performances, actually. I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm an outlier there, but that's to me where the real strength of this collection lies. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I I was thinking the same thing about a couple more years and to Mm. Ramona, actually, Mm. you know, to go back to that, because I'm not sure which comes first in the chronology and and the the track listing of the CD is not necessarily the chronology, but a couple more years is not his song. And Mm. maybe it reminded him of that's where he got the meter of to Ramona from. I'm not quite sure which one came first, but they, they do have a sort of relationship. I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. I'd like to stand up for first slippers. I mean, come on. <laughs> That's not what you said at the time. <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm joking. The first slippers is uh, is my new wiggle wiggle. So it's funny just... too because I think first slippers, another song that I've been thinking about recently is the Traveling Wilbury song "Dirty World," and I oh, yeah. think first slippers and Dirty World are a little bit related in the sense that they both mm. have like double entendres, mm. and that Dylan then kind of exaggerates. He starts out with something that's like a a double entendre, as you would mm. recognize it from an old blues song. Or in the case yeah. of Dirty World, Dylan said he wanted to write a Prince song, which I think yeah. is hilarious. Yeah. But then he takes it, you know, one step further and pushes it into kind of ridiculous or even like surreal territory. And either takes the metaphor that he's using a little bit too literally, and it throws you off if you're expecting, you know, a... Um, what's it called, like a hokum blues, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like a sexual double entendre. Mm-hmm. And I think First Slippers has that and Dirty Walton has that too, I think. So, yeah, I, th- I think they're related in that way. Yeah, yeah I think I think you're right. I mean, I do like that about uh, Bob, his, uh, well, it's it's more of, I think uh, I read an re- interview with him recently where they, they talked about his 1950s background because he was listening to music in the 50s. And he said, no, no, my musical background is 1930s. Hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, and that is becoming more and more the case, I think. Like, his sense of humor is like a 1930s radio show. Oh, yeah. That sense of fun and the sense of uh, filth in, in the, you know, in the case of First Slippers um, and, and really all of the Traveling Wilburys songs of, you know, that ilk with um, uh, car metaphors. And, yeah. If you need uh, your oil changed, I'll do it yes, for you. Exactly. Free and all that, yeah. I'd like somebody to write a book about um, the willful simplicity or even stupidity in some of Dylan's lyrics like Wiggle Wiggle rock and roll and as you say the, those those old 30s country songs with um suggestive lyrics um yeah. and i think that there's that's another part of Dylan that for some reason i don't know if it's ever been properly explored well i think actually michael gray wrote quite a lot about nursery rhymes in Dylan's songs and I think that's really applicable to Mm. a song like Wiggle Wiggle Mm. Um, but I agree with you and I think I would really love to see someone write about Dylan's sense of humor particularly the kind of what do you call them 
you can either call them you can either call them dad jokes or you can call them <laughs> yes. kind of um, yeah. because he he did a lot of those jokes in the late 90s early 2000s on stage you know uh, really yes. like children's jokes and that was around the same time that he was writing Love and Theft, where you have mm -hmm. Freddie on, on, here I come. Yeah. Politicians cool, got yeah. in his jogging shoes, must be running for office, yeah. got no time to lose. Called up room service, send, send up a room. room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it was around the same time that he was working on Mask and Anonymous, which started out as a slapstick comedy. And a lot of those kind of silly jokes have survived in the script for the film, even though it turned into something that's overall a lot darker mm. but I, I think that around that time it's, it's no coincidence that that all those things kind of happened concurrently because I do think that Dylan was thinking about that kind of humor and I, I would love to see someone write about that and I well, don't know maybe I, maybe I have to do it myself but yeah, yeah I think you will someone pointed out in one of our podcasts a couple of years back now even Buckets of Rain has a has a joke at the end you know I mean there are vaudeville jokes and there are obvious jokes and there are you know sitting on my watch so I can be on time mm. jokes. But there are also, I mean, Boots of Spanish Leather and Buckets of Rain are two songs that both have a joke as a punchline, but they're so mm. loaded with emotional hurt that they take on something else. But there's there's definitely something to be written about that, I think. Well, there's the uh, Bette Midler version of uh, Buckets yeah. of Rain as well, which is, which is really funny. And uh, I remember the first time I heard it, I mm. was kind of shocked. Mm. I thought it was... An, an outtake or something, but in, in fact, it was on her album. On her album, I yeah. think, wasn't it? But but I, when I heard it, I really was. I thought Bob Dylan is taking the piss out of one of his masterpieces <laughs> with his Midler woman. Yeah, and, and that's what he was doing, though. He was joyfully taking taking the piss out of of one of his masterpieces. Yeah. I thought it was very funny. I but think the, it shows um, that often we take his work a lot more seriously yeah, than he does. Yeah. Now, buckets of rain. It's the one about um, I love the way you move your hips. You know, I love the cool way you look at me. Everything about you is bringing me misery, yeah. but um, you know, and it's it's a really it's a really barbed joke, but it is a joke. But also, I mean, buckets of rain. If I can take it back to the lyrics that we were talking about at the beginning of the episode to Ramona, definitely Dylan is now a podcast as well. But I do want to plug the radio show a little bit as well. At the moment, we're not doing it on a weekly basis anymore, but we talk about you know Dylan's performances and Dylan's songs and it's just a lot more conversational but we did one episode that I thought was great <laughs> and I'm I, I'm gonna try and put it on Spotify at, at some point as well but we talked about that line in Tour Ramona everything passes everything changes just do what you think you should do and talked about the different iterations in which that sentiment shows up again and again in Dylan's work and Buckets of Rain is a crucial one because it says you do what you must do and you do it well. <laughs> because I think that that's something that really, that can be seen as almost Dylan's personal philosophy. He has a vision, he has an artistic vision that he knows he has to follow and he is serious about that vision and he is single-minded and that's what makes him such a fantastic artist and I mean that includes so many other things you know that we've touched on you know don't look back you have to keep going and also you know don't compare yourself with other people you know you're better than no one and no one's better than you in the end you have to be creating what only you can create and you have to push on with that you do what you must do and you do it well and I think that in a sense really beautifully sums up Dylan as an artist and what has brought him to the point that he is at at the moment, 80 years old and still creating what I think can be considered some of his best works and that are still relevant to our time that touch on a lot of the themes that we're grappling with at the moment. And I hope that it will continue to steer him and to guide him that kind of vision. Do you read a lot of books about Dylan? I mean, I have a lot of books about Dylan on my shelf and I have read a lot of them. I think when I started listening to Dylan, I read a lot about him just because I was so curious and so fascinated. Mm. And I think my gateway into thinking about Bob Dylan in a more serious way was the Performing Artist Trilogy by Paul Williams, who I mm -hmm. still think is, you know, one of the most profound writers on Dylan. And I, I love going back to him because he somehow always seems to distill my thoughts into a really beautiful turn of phrase, but also he said it, you know, 30 years ago or 40 years ago. At the moment, 
I have the books and, and, and I know where to look stuff up. And I, I do still read about Dylan. I mean, when something new comes out, the Terry Gans book, Surviving in a Ruthless World, uh, I read because it was the first book researched in the archive and it kind of led us into this recent bootleg series. And I mean, this year, certainly a lot of great books came out. I know that you were also involved in the Dylan at 80 book. Um, yeah, you and me both had a, had a chapter. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so that's a great collection that I've been really enjoying. But speaking of uh, speaking of Tulsa, you just touched on that. You're involved in some way in either the institute or the center, and is that right? Well, I'm very honored that I was asked to be on the board of the Institute of Bob Dylan Studies in Tulsa, which I think came about because I traveled to this first conference in 2019, and I presented a paper there. That was a fascinating conference. You know, I got to meet some of my heroes. You know, Anne Powers was there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know she was on your podcast um, as yeah, well. Yeah. I mean, she is just fantastic and I, I admire her so much. And also, you know, other people, you know, uh, Richard Thomas, who wrote Why Dylan Matters. And, yeah. you know, he's fantastic. And then people who I just personally have been following so much and who I think are just such heroes of mine in the Dylan world like Scott Wormuth so to me it was a very nerdy joy to be there in Tulsa and to present some of my thoughts that were very important to me so so I really relished the opportunity to be able to present them in front of people who care about that kind of stuff <laughs> so yeah what's the difference yeah, between the institute and the center because they're both in Tulsa right Yes. And are they connected or? I, I Okay. It's, I hope I'm getting this right. I'm not totally, yeah. I'm not totally sure. But huh. so the Institute of Bob Dylan Studies is affiliated with the university mm-hmm. and basically is responsible for really like the, the academic side. And then there's the archive, which is not necessarily affiliated with i think it's its own thing mm-hmm. open to researchers and so on and then the bob dylan center is again a separate thing because it's almost like an institution a museum that draws on the archive works with the institute but ultimately stands on its own and puts on exhibitions and will become you know something that people can go and visit i hope that makes mm-hmm. sense whereas the archive yes. is going to be uh, i think more open to only researchers, and the Institute is part of the university. I'm glad that we're able to admit that the three of us weren't really clear on that because I suddenly thought I'm going well, to get stoned I think it did a pretty good job explaining it. I think, you, I think you did, actually. You did, you I really think, did. Well, the Bob Dylan Centre sounds a bit like Dylan uh, World. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Disney World. Or, I you think know, that's it's, what it's, it's going to be, centre. I hope. Will there be six-foot people dressed up as Bob Dylan in big furry costumes? <laughs> It'll be like a, a Rolling Thunder Dylan, and you if I play with with sixty six Dylan, that'd be great. I love it. Oh, I think that's quite oh, a good that... idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Particularly this year, so many books have come out. Oh yeah, this, this year. This oh, this yeah. year has really. When you said, "Oh, you know, do you read books about Bob Dylan?" I think I only had this feeling of you know being quite overwhelmed by how many books have come out and you know there's only so much time that we all have to read but I I I do I mean I love reading about Dylan obviously I love I love seeing you know the new ideas that people take to Bob Dylan's work and that to me is always really interesting and you know the changing narratives and that's something that I find really interesting. Another really good book that I've recently read that I can really recommend is by Grayley Heron, and it's about time out of mind. It's called Dreams and Dialogues in Dylan's Time Out of Mind. And Time Out of Mind, I think, is an album that still needs to be talked about more anyway. I think a lot of us still have it in our minds as like a recent Dylan album, but, you know, we, we can look back on it now with considerable hindsight, actually. And I think Grayley's approach is really quite creative in the sense that he looks at it as a narrative and, you know, a story that Dylan is telling over the course of an album. And I think it's very, it's, it's a great book. I would really, I would recommend that. Are there any, speaking of time and change and looking back, are there any Dylan songs that have changed for you over the years where you thought they meant one thing or you felt one thing and now you feel or think something completely different? Yes. <laughs> I'm just trying to remember which ones, but um, I mean, they, I think that's a beautiful thing about Dylan, you know, that we grow with the songs and 
as he keeps performing them or maybe not performing them, you know, as we get old, as he gets older, you know, our relationship to the songs changes. I think one song that is an interesting example for it because I think it has changed for Bob Dylan and therefore it's changed the way I see the song is the song When I Paint My Masterpiece. Mm. You know, when it came out, Dylan wrote it kind of in between albums. It became more famous, I think, because the band covered it maybe. Mm-hmm. And and Dylan, you know, played it on and off. But I think in the last few years, it's really come back to the forefront of his concerts. He talked about it in the Douglas Brinkley interview in the New York Times and kind of emphasized that this is a song that has grown on him over the years. But I also think it's especially crucial for where Bob Dylan is at at the moment because I see When I Paint My Masterpiece as a description of the cycle of creativity. You're always about to paint your masterpiece. And I think that's how, to me, that's how Dylan sees it, you know. It's never, oh, you know, now this is done. You know, you never rest on your laurels. Instead, after the painting is before the painting, right, of the next masterpiece. He even said that in the interview, talking about how, but even when you paint your masterpiece, what will you do then? Well, you have to paint another masterpiece. And I think that this, in addition to the song kind of also being about drawing on the past for inspiration, uh, the streets of Rome are filled with rubble, ancient footprints are everywhere. And he's going through this old world, through the ruins of old civilizations, looking for inspiration, seeking inspiration. And I see a direct line from that song to a song like my own version of you on Rough and Rowdy Ways. And of course, When I Paint My Masterpiece was also the opening song for Shadow Kingdom. And I had my money on the fact that this song would also be a staple of his 2021 set list. And I was surprised that he didn't play it, uh, I think, for the first two concerts. But then it came back and I was like, okay, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, I think think that is an interesting example for a song that has changed meanings for Dylan himself, but then also for us, because it brings out a different aspect to the song that I probably had overlooked before I heard Dylan talk about it, before I looked at it in the context of songs about creativity and the creative process, like the ones that we find on Rough and Rowdy Ways. And I mean, that's, and then there are obviously, you know, just personal songs. I mean, you know, To Ramona is a, is a great example for a song that I think continues to ring more and more true the older I get, you know, different lines jump out at me. And this can be said for any Dylan song, or for many Dylan songs at least, and seem, you know, particularly profound depending on where I'm at in my life, you know, what kind of advice I need and what I'm looking for. You know, usually there's a Dylan song that contains it. <laughs> and it's just about whether we're ready to hear it in that moment, I think. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster. Engineered by Nev Brothers and produced by Robin Guys. Digital imaging by Finn Guys. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, a music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. I can write you poems. Make a strong man lose his mind. I'm no pig without a wig. I hope you treat me kind. Things are breaking up out there. High water everywhere. <laughs>